This is Larry Downs, and you're listening to Leader Lab. So who are you and what do you do? So I'm Larry Downs, and I'm a research fellow with the Accenture Institute for High Performance. You're incredibly humble. You are also the author of a ton of different stuff around this idea of disruption. Uh, The most recent one being, I'm making sure I get this title right, the most recent being Big Bang Disruption, Strategy in the Age of Devastating Innovation. There's a lot of terms there I want to unpack, but I want to say I've actually been sort of looking forward to this book for a while because if I remember right, this was a piece in Harvard Business Review back in 2013 uh, and, and an idea that I was going like, okay, this is one of those, there are some books that are really just HBR articles and there's nothing there. And then there are other books that the, when the HBR article gets unpacked into an entire book, there's an additive effect and it's, the sum is greater than its parts. And I've really enjoyed that um, for this book. But um, talk about some of the ideas that kind of led you both to wanting to write this book. And then we'll get into what this term Big Bang Disruption means. Sure. So, and, and thank you, by the way, we're glad to hear that you thought the, uh, the article worked as an entire book. Uh, we were, we were, you know, we wanted to make sure we gave enough in the article to get people interested in the book, but we'd obviously want to give away everything good uh, in, in the article. So, uh, you know, Paul Nunes and I have known each other for, for many years, and we've both been writing about the subject of disruptive innovation uh, from different vantage points and different angles. And actually, this project started probably three or four years ago when Paul's last book came out, uh, which was called Jumping the S-Curve. And when I read it, I thought, well, you know, there's something here that's that's tingling my spider senses. There's something that I was trying to work on uh, when I was uh, still at the the faculty at uh, at Berkeley uh, about uh, sort of the changing nature of disruption and, and what that meant for incumbents and startups as well. So we got together uh, in a sort of fateful breakfast meeting in Washington, D.C., and, and I said, you know, this is what I'm working on. And he said, this is what he's working on. And we thought, well, let's see if something can, can come together of this. And we started what turned out to be a, you know, now three-plus-year research project with lots of people working, uh, trying to collect stories about how uh, innovations have entered the market in different ways and had different impacts uh, than, uh, than, you know, kind of the entire business literature that has happened up till now would, would predict. Yeah, and, and I should say, uh, we were talking off the air about uh, thanks for ruining Everett Rogers' curve for me. Um, that's sort of what the, the article did. And then I'm, I got so much hope when the book came out because it's sort of like, oh, here's how we deal with this change. One of the things I think is most interesting is there's a lot of old models of innovation and of strategy that I won't say they, they don't necessarily apply anymore, but they apply to very, very st- almost static markets. And what you point out, what you really focused in on in these markets where uh, I think one of the best examples is is where the end result of a hackathon can end up just totally terminating your your entire market. H- how do you plan for strategy then? It's a little more complicated than a five forces matrix or, you know, the Everett Rogers normal curve, uh, diffusion of innovation curve. So within that, you guys sort of coin a new model that can kind of apply to these sort of unpredictable, devastating innovation times. You call it this big bang disruption. Tell us a little bit about that model and, and how it how it kind of corrects the older models. Sure. So I think, you know, our, our principal observation was that that what was happening was that disruptive innovations, you know, driven by largely information technology, but lots of other technologies uh, on the uh, on the fringe here that are getting ready to exhibit the same kind of characteristics, uh, we're entering the market in kind of this better and cheaper way. So if you know the kind of classic work of Clayton Christensen, he said that the way disruptive innovations could enter the market is as uh, worse but cheaper 
innovations that would, you know, kind of establish a niche market of non-customers of yours as the incumbent and then work their way up and get better over time and eventually uh, uh, challenge your, your core markets and your core technologies. And what he said was, you know, when you see them entering the market as these these uh, these worse but cheaper alternatives. That's when you needed to start really investigating what those technologies were and how they were going to ultimately uh, replace yours. Our observation was that that's no law. You know, that's his, you know sort of that's the what he called the innovator's dilemma. Now it's the innovator's disaster because when these innovations show up, they are better and cheaper right from the start. So if you've been waiting for them to enter the market. Uh, and start to establish their their customers before you do anything. You've now waited too long. And in that sense, you know the Christensen uh, solution has become counterproductive. In fact, it's become dangerous. If you follow his advice, you're going to wait too long. Uh, you're not going to have the opportunity to respond, and you will be crushed. And you may be crushed very quickly, depending on what industry you're in and what other kinds of uh, natural. Uh, models there are that slow things down or speed things up in that industry, but it really we couldn't find any industry where this phenomenon wasn't happening. I, I love that you, you what you're saying there about it's almost too late, right? Because I think back to um, I, I love the example of Twitter and South by Southwest mostly because I'm a South by Southwest junkie, but but also if you think about the nature of uh, a Netflix and Blockbuster, right? Where here's an example of almost not even worse, right off the bat better, right off the bat cheaper, and and there's even a story. Uh, that Reed Hastings wanted a meeting with the people at Blockbuster to essentially give them the technology and say, let us handle your DVDs by mail and your future streaming business. You focus on the retail store. And they were using sort of these old models of that's not a that's not a fear. That's not core. That's not our core competency. Right. Et cetera. That's not our, our market position. So we don't need to worry about it. Uh, I, I don't, is there actually a Blockbuster still open? I haven't found one anywhere near my town. No, well, they shut, you know, so this is just in the last six months. Or they've, they've announced they're shutting all the rest of the retail locations. All they have left is is their kind of Me Too business of the Netflix, of a, of a streaming and a, and a mail service, which is now bundled in with a bunch of other stuff. Yeah, they failed. And I think that's a great example of, of the main problem here. It's not generally a technology problem. It's a leadership problem. Uh, what we say is, you know, long before Netflix showed up, uh, long before any of these disruptors showed up, the leadership of, of these uh, companies knows full well that there are technology disruptors that are on the horizon. You know, maybe it's if you're if you're a book publisher, you know, you know, ebooks uh, are not ready for prime time, but you don't, you know, you know they're coming, and eventually somebody's going to get it right. It's going to get the right price and performance and battery life, and all. you know it's going to happen. Uh, Paul and I call that the inevitable truth of your industry. And 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 you always know it as a leader, uh, but and you've got plenty of time to respond to it. But the real problem is culturally, uh, from the standpoint of if you're a public company responding to Wall Street, there's another reason you just don't. You you just don't respond. You 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 know you do all sorts of you deny it. You get angry about it. It's kind of like you know the the old model of, of how people come to terms with the terminal illness. They go through those stages of of grief. And if you don't go through these fast enough as a business, you will miss the opportunity to have a strategic response at all. And then you are like Blockbuster, where now it's just, you know, you have no, literally no options at all. Yeah. And uh, one of the reasons I think for that, like you said, it's a leadership issue, but it's also what, what models are, are you using, right? And one of the things I've learned in, in recent technologies that are all of the things that are going on with technologies, the models that work, work for a much shorter period of time. 
Uh, case in point, like I joked about earlier, you ruined Everett Rogers' model of the fusion of innovation for me. Not ruined because the stages still happen, but it was this nice normative bell curve that yeah, I kind of feel like every time we try and fit something into a bell curve, it doesn't actually want to be that way. And in this case, it's not. In a, in a better and cheaper world, you say it's, it's use the term big bang disruption or, or the sort of shark fin to describe what this model looks like, that you scale up to that early, those early adopters become the majority way quicker than you can predict nowadays. Yeah, well, it's, 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 it's a qualitative difference as well as a quantitative difference, right? So we say, uh, that, you know, the big bang disruption is uh, this better and cheaper product or service that enters. And then, you know, because it's better and cheaper, you know, rational consumers who can spread information now much more easily among themselves through social media and so on, they're going to tell each other, hey, you know, don't don't buy a, a standalone GPS navigation device. Your smartphone now does it and it does it better and cheaper and even better integrated with with all these other things. So when that shows up, they're just going to all move at once. And instead of uh, early early adopters, uh, you know, who had very important characteristics in terms of being able to uh, test out the the uh, product early, willing to pay a premium just to be kind of the first ones to have it, uh, that what used to be called the early adopter tax, uh, there is still a, a a group like that. We call them trial users because they're much more than early adopters. They're the people that not only work with the kind of experimental versions of the product. And a lot of times, you know, especially if it's a piece of software, it's going to change many, many times uh, in a very short period of time. But not only are they the early users of it, they're also the ones collaborating with you on telling you what's wrong with it. And, uh, you know, if it's a Kickstarter kind of a situation, they may be funding, uh, actually, the development of the product before you've even put a pen to paper. Uh, and increasingly, they're the ones who are going to be your cheerleaders, your marketing department, your salespeople. They're going to be support. They're going to tell other users, you know, how to fix things when they don't work right. So what what used to be the early adopter has now become uh, a much more compressed in a short period of time in a smaller group, but a much more important group, we think, uh, for for particularly for people who are working with very disruptive uh, and new entrants. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And one of the other things that really struck me with the book is that if if our model of how an innovation spread changes, then our strategies have to change. You know, it used to be enough to look at a static market, do a five forces analysis, be able to figure out uh, where, do a BCG matrix, all of these sort of old school tools. It was never enough. It was never <laughs> All right. Five forces model was always purely academic. It never worked. Because as you say, it assumes a static market. And, you know, unless you're in you know, some highly regulated industry where change is not allowed by law, let's say, you know, public utility or, or something, uh, a static market was a, was a fiction from the very beginning. Anybody who relied on that was, was, uh, was, was making a big mistake. Sorry to interrupt you. No, that's, that's a totally fair point. But if you could have deluded yourself into thinking that the static market existed, you cannot do that anymore. And by the time you run that analysis, between the time between devising it and implementing it, the market has changed. How do we, as, as leaders, as strategists, how do we respond to this? And what kind of strategies does, do we, are effective in this new world? Right. So we talk about a lot of that. And in fact, the whole second half of the book, we, we outline, you know, what we call our 12 rules for, for Big Bang Disruption. And those are kind of sequenced along our new, the replacement to the, to the bell curve, which you referred to before as the shark fin. So there's lots, you know, and there's lots of things. Again, this was all from our, our research. We observed this and saw lots of companies, lots of different industries doing it right 
and doing it wrong. But it includes things like, you know, sort of figuring out uh, a kind of a make-buy decision if, if the uh, disruptor is coming quickly. Uh, even if you're a startup or a very entrepreneurial company yourself, look at the kind of acquisitions that Facebook and others have made in the last few years. They see disruptive technology coming. Google, of course, is a prime example as well. And rather than trying to duplicate it or invent it, they just acquire uh, the startup. And if they acquire it early enough, uh, then, you know, they might get a good price. If they wait too long, of course, it's impossible price. So nobody could have acquired Twitter. By the time they went public, the price would have been, you know, uh, infinity. Whereas, you know, the, the most recent uh, Facebook acquisition, the uh, virtual reality company uh, Oculus VR, you know, they got it for a mere $2 billion. Uh, and uh, this is, you know, this is a, you know, we're talking here about a young company that's doing that kind of acquisition. So you can imagine if you're a longstanding incumbent in the industry, uh, you may need to really open up the way you look at your customers and the technology and the way they're using things. And that's the examples we give near the end of the book. We talk about companies, uh, Citibank is a good example of this, AT&T is another good example of it, who, you know, relatively low cost, low risk things you can do. You can stage hackathons where you try and get people to use your technology, but break it or or, or put it to uses you can't think about, and then watch, you know, 48 hours later, watch what happens. What did they come up with? Was it something interesting? If it was, you know, maybe you bring them into your incubator, uh, work with them more directly, see if you can turn that into a product or service idea. Ultimately, maybe you'll invest in them or acquire them or hire them or something of that nature. But, you know, getting involved, uh, thanks again to the same technologies we're talking about, the cloud and uh, broadband networks and, and, you know, just this sort of component-based uh, technology we've got for hardware and software, it's not expensive. It's not even high risk for incumbents to get involved early in new technologies. Uh, they just have to be willing to do it. Yeah, there's a sort of certain irony that if better and cheaper can become the new norm, it's just as accessible to an established player as it is to that younger player, right? And yet that's still the the unwillingness to kind of try it out kind of exists. We want to pretend we have a static market instead of just uh, embracing that better or cheaper. And as a result, you know, I, I applaud Facebook and the Oculus Rift one. The, you also have to look at like a WhatsApp acquisition and go, okay, that's, that's what you pay when you wait too long, right? Yeah. So this better well, or cheaper you- could be cheaper. And the risk, of course, is if you do it too early, you know, uh, the WhatsApp, which is this, this uh, Wi-Fi based SMS application, it goes outside of the of the normal cellular architecture. There are dozens of them that were around uh, at the beginning. And so if you said to them, well, why didn't you get it sooner? They're like, well, we didn't know which one was going to take off. Many of them are very, very similar. Obviously, with with WhatsApp, what they saw was the incredible uh, takeoff in terms of the number of users. So they were, you know, at half a billion uh, when Facebook pulled the pulled the trigger. Now imagine if they, you could sort of say 19 billion is a lot of money, but what if they had waited till they reached a billion users? What would the price have been then? Now suddenly you think, well, 19 billion may have been a bargain. And at that point, you know, you had a much reduced risk that you were picking the wrong uh, startup uh, to uh, to acquire. Hmm. Yeah, and the solid solid examples. What I what I love about the 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 book, and this is I sort of. I joked about Rift on this earlier, so please, to our listeners, don't just read the article. Get a copy of the book. So the article does a great job of, of sort of stretching these things, but I love the depth of which you outline examples and what the right strategies are. The whole second half of the book, uh, I really, really enjoyed. So I want to encourage our listeners um, to check that out, to learn how not to just trust Porter's five forces model that you learned in B-School. 
between you and me, I obviously struck a nerve on that Five Forces model thing. Um, but I'm, I'm there with you. So check it out. The book is, is Big Bang Disruption, Strategy in the Age of Devastating Innovation. Although it doesn't have to be so devastating, you just need the right strategy. I wondered, though, Larry, if we could switch a bit from the book to you and ask you a couple questions. The first, the first being, what are you reading right now? So I, you know, I'm, I'm actually, the funny thing is, I'm rereading Everett Rogers. Uh, I, uh, it's sitting literally right on my nightstand uh, because, you know, I had read it a long time ago. We looked at it again, of course, as we were writing the book. But it's a, you know, it's a very important work. And I think that there's probably a lot in there that we can pull out of it and say, all right, now, you know, it needs to be adapted, needs to be rethought. But it's by no means, a, you know, a, sort of a dead letter. Well, and, you know, I, I kind of I, I agree with you on this. We were talking about this a bit offline. I think what's changed is that we've realized we can't fit it into a normative distribution curve. But, you know, he also talks about the, these ideas that make it all the way through the innovation curve. They have these sort of five factors. They're, they're, easy, they're a, a high relative advantage. They're easily triable, all of those sort of things. And I felt like those rules, as I was reading the, what sort of makes these big bang disruptive innovations succeed, those rules, I think, are still in play. It's just that the timeline is much more compressed. Well, that could be the next article that we that we do, I think, because I, I think, you know, it was, you know, such a heavily researched book and it's got such a great pedigree. Uh, we didn't want to dispose of it. There are other books we probably would dispose of, but that's not one of them. <laughs> well, and that actually leads me to an, another great question for you on a personal note is, is this book by no means is launched. It, it came out in January. Um, but so there's still a lot of work to be done spreading the, the gospel of Big Bang disruption. But what, what's next for you? What's next for you and Paul or you and the Accenture Institute? What are you looking to the future to work on? So we're, the research continues um, with Accenture. We're, we're still, you know, looking for more examples. We're particularly focusing now, I think, on uh, industries that were the least uh, likely to have experienced big bang disruption, or not much of it. And we're trying to figure out why some industries seem to be more resistant to others. Uh, hint: the the the, uh, the principal reason usually seems to be heavy duty regulation. And so you're seeing, you know, uh, some some much more dramatic breakdowns. Uh, for example, we've been writing a lot about things like the hotel industry, the taxicab and limousine industry. They're being faced with a, a string of new forms of you know, digitally enhanced competition, things like Airbnb and Uber and Lyft and all the other services. And this is kind of a clash now between the regulated part of the industry and the unregulated part of the industry. And that is, uh, you know, it turns out having a good idea and good technology in those industries isn't enough. You also have to have good lawyers uh, because they fight back with the regulation. I think we're going to see that a lot more in things like healthcare, where there are a lot of interesting technologies kind of dancing around the edges uh, of things that would really change the very nature of how, you know, we monitor ourselves, how we treat ourselves, how we interact with medical professionals. And uh, we expect fully that what that will translate to is, again, a lot of these kind of regulatory fights over whether you're even allowed to do that and who's allowed to do that and who needs to approve it and, you know, what procedures you have to go through. We've already seen some examples of that. So those, I think that's where the, the, the research is, is headed next. Yeah, you know, and that actually answers an interesting question. This, this book sort of answers what happens when your new startup competitors are, are both better and cheaper, but what happens if they're better, cheaper, and totally free from regulation, and you have to play by the the old rules? That's a, that's an interesting question that I think far too many uh, CEOs are probably struggling with right now. Is how do I how do I deal with that? And if yeah. not, I know every taxicab driver in the country is furious. Yeah, and if you you know, frankly, if you've been in a regulated industry for any period of time, you let's say two full generations of management uh, has lived their entire careers 
thinking that their main customer is the regulator. Uh, you can't imagine how they would respond to being, so even if they were set free and said, okay, now, you know, we're going to take away the regulation. It's clear it doesn't, it's not necessary anymore. Or the market is going to do a better job. Uh, what do they do? That's what happened. Remember in the airline industry, it was a crash deregulation in the late seventies and you had this crazy, all the airlines, you know, suddenly everybody uh, became a national airline. All the regional carriers wanted it. Everybody was expanding and growing and you had this really uh, crazy stuff going on, people who didn't know how to operate in a competitive market. And so you had this huge boom and then this terrible bust and all these airlines uh, that had been around for, for decades disappeared. You know, people like you know, Braniff and, and uh, People Express, even one of the startups and Laker, uh, they just didn't quite know how to operate without the, the regulators as their customers. So uh, I think it, it's a risk uh, when you deregulate an industry, the managers just, you know, they don't have the tool set to, to often to operate. You know, in the, in the spirit of Everett Rogers. So that might be the new chasm that we have to figure out how to cross the deregulation one. Um, so certainly we'll be keeping an eye on that, which is which is awesome. In the meantime, the book again, Big Bang Disruption Strategy in the Age of Devastating Innovation. It's a solid read, not just to figure out the, this model that explains what we've all been seeing, but also how do we as leaders and strategists shape a new strategy around that? Because you can no longer pretend that the static market exists anymore. It's now a devastating innovation market, and you've got to craft a strategy for that. Larry, thank you so much for joining us inside the Leader Lab. David, it was my pleasure. Hey everybody, it's David from the Leader Lab Podcast. I just want to thank you for being a part of this community and for listening to this podcast episode. And I want to remind you that you can get even more content from us if you connect with us online. We're at Twitter, twitter.com slash LDRLB, Facebook, facebook.com slash LDRLB. And of course, you can subscribe to this podcast in either iTunes or Stitcher, or just subscribe to our email newsletter and we'll email you every single time we post a new episode. Thanks so much for being a part of the community. Look forward to giving you even more great content.